Well, good morning, everybody, and happy long weekend uh, to all of you. Thanks for being with us this morning. If you've got a Bible, I'd love you to open up into the Old Testament to the book of Hosea. Uh, a little bit later in my message, we're going to be there. So if you've got a Bible, you can do that. Our story today is an interesting one. Over the last three weeks, we've been dealing with this series called The Big D. We need to talk what the Bible says about a divorce and remarriage and marriage in general. And as I've been speaking, and Dave spoke three weeks ago too, but in the last two weeks, I've referenced something specific that has got a lot of eyebrows raised. Well, there's been a lot of eyebrows raised. But specifically, I've been saying one thing or hinting at one thing about today. I said, the God that we love in this church and the God that has worshipped in every church, the God that we put our hope in for this life and our hope in for the life to come, has been through a divorce himself. The God that we sang to this morning, the God we just gave to, the God that we love and uplift in this place is a divorced God. He is a divorcee. You who have been through divorce, you who are children of divorce, God completely understands the question, the pain, the lost dreams that you have been through. And he does not know it from a distance in the heavens. God has experienced this viscerally himself. Our story today does not begin, though, with his divorce. Our story actually begins on the wedding day. God is about to marry a nation, a small, insignificant, not well-known family. Out of his love, the Bible says, he elects, he predestines, he calls one man. His name is Abram. His father was a moon worshiper. They did not know the living God at all. And he says to him, you are about to become the father of Israel, which will bless all nations. Your offspring, he would say, will become the Hebrew people, and they will show the nations what it actually means to know me, the living God. Yet even more important, this line, this nation will produce the Messiah who is Jesus, who will bring people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every family group to know God. God comes and he makes a covenant. He marries himself to a people out of love. Don't forget that when you read the book of Genesis, they weren't looking for God. They did not know this God existed. But out of love, he chooses to introduce himself and says, you... I've chosen you out of all the peoples because I love you. Genesis 17, 3, and Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will now become Abraham. For I have made you the father of nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations from you. Kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Years later, after this Those people went through something called the Exodus. And God reaffirms his marriage with these people after bringing them out of slavery. God speaks over his people. He sings over his people. He speaks amazingly as a lover, a savior, a faithful husband companion. He speaks actually to this group of people what every person ever born wants in their deepest parts to be the sole focus of one person's love, to be wanted to be valued over everyone else. Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and you keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. 
Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so he said, since we're in covenant together, (coughs) since we love each other, since we are married together, let's keep this relationship alive by obeying these life-giving commands, what we now call the Ten Commandments. You can read about them in Exodus 20. He said, look, don't have any other gods in front of me. Don't have affair with other things. Don't bow down or build idols. By the way, he says, they're demonic or just downright fake. Don't misuse my name. Uh, Keep the Sabbath holy. You know what? Honor mom and dad. Uh, No murder with my people. No adultery. uh, No stealing. No lying. And no lusting after your neighbor, their stuff, or themselves. You must love God, he says. You see, as you love God, you'll love God, and as you love God, you'll love others. The vertical homage will spill over into horizontal every day. And so, like all new marriages, they said, full of happiness, full of vigor, full of excitement, walking down the aisle, oh yes, in sickness, in the good times and bad, God and you and you alone are our lover and our companion and our friend and our husband. We commit everything to you. So then we ask, what happened? We hope, right, for the happy marriage. We hope for the movie uh, of the week. We hope for the perfectly framed wedding picture. But instead, we find God now at home, alone. The lights are out. The picture is on the ground. It's smashed and broken. Like a wound that would not heal, the people of God have now decided to play a new part, the part of a whore. Like a perfect storm, a new dark theme appears within the holy history of God's people. The people of God, right? The elect, the loved ones, the hope for the nations have become God's unfaithful wife. The book of Deuteronomy, verse 32, verse 16, it says, They made him jealous with their foreign gods, and they angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons that aren't even God, gods they had not known, gods that had just recently appeared on the scene, gods your fathers did not even fear. Read these words. Watch them, feel them, see the pain, the honest reaction of the God you supposedly and I supposedly know. After so much love, this is what he gets. Never forget that God introduced himself when they were spiritually dead, when they were disconnected, when they were inventing gods like the moon and worshiping the kingdom of darkness. And now the very thing he had come and set them free from, they were now going back and eating. Can you imagine God sitting with a friend or a counselor talking about his unfaithful spouse? They made me jealous, he says, with what was no God, verse 21, and angered me with their worthless idols. Time and time again, God tried to woo them, tried to love them, even tried to chastise them, but they fell back into many arms of new lovers as they broke that first two commandments. They were only on their way to breaking the rest. It was only a matter of time, and that's exactly what happened. Those that knew heaven decided to love hell. Those who had been given love undeserved spurned it. And so after adultery... And desertion, too many times to count, the God of the universe chooses to act. Through the mouth of his prophets, God did the unthinkable to his people. The God we worship, the God we serve, the God we pray to, uh, cried out in anger, in pain, in torment, and said, Enough! I, God, will now take on a new name. I am a divorcee. 
I have become a widower. I have lost my love. The papers are now about to be given. What was alive and beautiful and vibrant and full of hope is dead. It's ugly. It's stale. It's hopeless. You see, Israel had bought into syncretism. The greatest threat to this church today is the same one there, where they decided to blend the most holy faith with other ideas and other views, because they were smarter, right? The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 50, verse 1, this is what the Lord says, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which one of the creditors did I sell you? Because your sins you were sold. Because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away. Out of the mouth of Jeremiah, chapter 3, But you have lived like a prostitute with many lovers. Now you would return to me, Israel, declares the Lord. Look up into the barren heights and see. Is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside you sat waiting for your lovers. Verse 6, during the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithful, faithless Israel has done? She's gone up onto every high hill, under every spreading tree, and she's committed adultery there. I thought that after you know, she was done all this, she'd return to me. She didn't. Even her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Just stop and think about that for a moment. If you're a Christian here this morning, part of the people of God, can you imagine God coming to you or us as a church after that one more sin and saying, that's it? Don't come back. Uh, No need to take communion, no need to go to church, no need for small groups, stop serving people. Actually, just burn your Bibles and, and don't ever come back to worship. You're dead to me. That's what this was supposed to do. It was supposed to shock the people of God back to see what they had lost. You see, God is like a jilted husband in the Old Testament. His love is spurned like a faithful spouse, wrecked by the news that his wife went around not just with one man, but all sorts of men and had sex with them and just loved it. Anger, betrayal, pain, hurt, question. These are the emotions we find in Holy Writ. The people of God were like the wife that would come home and and act all loving and kind and full of joy. Yet the faithful God would look into her eyes and he would see the truth. He would see all the lovers, all the betrayal, all the excuses, all the lies, all the deceptions, every prayer, every sacrifice, every festival he had started to remind them of his love became a painful sign for him of the other lovers, the others, not him. They as a nation were like the spouse that had to work late all the time, that had to go on business trips all the time. They covered their desertion and adultery thinking that God would never really need to find out. They were the ones who booked the hotel rooms and getaways with secret credit cards so the one at home would never need to know. And then they'd stay up when they were at home, consumed with how to cover their tracks and embrace fantasy, which now, of course, had become their unholy reality. We can have our cake and eat it too, John. These other gods, you've got to understand, they're more sexy, they're more fun, they're newer, they're younger. They let us do what we feel and what we want to. We're free of those stupid ten rules, free to express ourselves naturally under the tree and beside the altar. What they thought was freedom was really sexual atrocity and a reintroduction of of bondage. 
Knowing it or not, the first and greatest of all lies spoken by Lucifer in Eden was embraced at every single encounter. God's a liar. God doesn't really care for us. God definitely is not in control. And God will never need to know. Let us eat the forbidden fruit. Let us be like God and be the masters of our destiny. We've decided that we can worship him and others. All roads lead to heaven, right? And so full of righteous jealousy, being provoked and stirred, God acts. The adultery the abandonment, this desertion, the very things, of course, that Jesus and Paul talk about in the New Testament connected with divorce and remarriage. Now God in the Old Testament moves to publicly display his feelings for his fallen wife. So what does God do? Being so artistic, God decides to put on a play. He calls a faithful man, a prophet named Hosea, a fully devoted follower to show his people the hard truth about this dying marriage. Your life will be a pageant, Hosea. You will play my part, and your wife will play the part of my wife, Israel. Your real life will be my real life. Hosea 1, verse 2, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, this is what the Lord said to him. Go, go take for yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery and is departing from the Lord. God says, I want you to go, Hosea, and marry an adulterous woman. I want you to go marry a sex trade worker, a prostitute, a woman whose very life is marked by unfaithfulness. As she is, so my wife is. Her name was Gomer. She was involved with a lot of men before this wedding day, and we will actually see in a moment she's involved with a lot of men after. Choosing to obey God, he agrees to have himself be put on public display. But never forget, this isn't fairy tale or allegory. This is a true story that happened by a guy named Hosea. He would personally feel and know the bitterness and pain that God was going through. He would be placed in the same situation of the creator of the universe. And so the question emerges. Here it is. Would he choose to show undeserved love for an unfaithful and undeserving spouse? And so he goes. Hosea, the faithful one, goes and marries. Can you imagine the family get together at Christmas? The local priests, the prophets. You're marrying a what? You're marrying a prostitute? You're a little pervert, aren't you? Maybe you're not a prophet. Maybe you're not as fully devoted as we thought. No wedding gifts from us, Hosea. We follow God. You and your whore can go start life by yourself. The words would have crashed into his mind. He was only being faithful. The Spirit of God whispers, well done and reminds him that those, even in his family, that mock him and those that accuse him are actually the ones probably committing adultery on the living God, the, the one they think they know, love, and represent. And so he marries this woman named Gomer, which means, by the way, completion. Even her name is contradiction. Go and marry a woman named Completion who will never complete you. So he marries Gomer, verse 3, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end, an end, to the kingdom of Israel. You see, not only will his marriage play out the dying marriage of God and the divorce, but his children, their very names, will show the decay of lost love. The first child, you may not know this, is named after a well-known sin. 
King Jehu killed all sorts of innocent people to solidify his political power. Murder. Innocent people being butchered. Political power. All break what? The Ten Commandments. And all show no trust in the sovereignty of God. Give him his name, Jezreel. I will soon punish. Verse 6, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhemha, for I am about to no longer show the love to the house of Israel that I should forgive all of them. The second child comes and gives that beautiful little girl a name that reflects Israel itself. Abandonment, desertion, adultery. God, he says, listen, will have no compassion No love. God will not pity or care what happens to his ex-wife. When trouble comes, God is not going to sweep in. He will not display his compassionate mercy. Nothing is extended. I'm out of here. You think things couldn't get worse, but they do. After she had weaned this daughter, Gomer had another son. Verse 9, And the Lord said, I want you to call him lo Emi or am I? For you are not my people, and I'm not your God. The very name of this child, when you think about the implication, means one word. Divorce. You're not my people anymore. I'm not your husband anymore. You're not my wife. I will not be your God. It's done. One wrote, Israel's unfaithful adultery will lead to the dissolution of that covenant relationship. They will no longer be called the children of God. Their identity will change because they have committed themselves to one thing, another lover. And so that's it. The papers are served, the divorce happens, and it's death. You've all been there through divorce. You all have have friends who've been there. You see the chaos of divorce. You know it. This happens with eternal love. Then suddenly, the one who's been walked out on, the one who's been ditched by the way for nothing, the one who's been forced to split up, to leave, to drop, the one that had to end the relationship, and by the way, had every righteous right to, Suddenly, something happens. He he turns, and with an undeserved love, he, he cries out for his lost love. His mercy suddenly takes over and overcomes sin. His grace overcomes all the late nights. The God of heaven speaks. The heavens are shaken, and he cries out, and suddenly, undeservedly, God renews that covenant started with Abraham. Verse 10, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which, which cannot be measured or counted in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and Israel will be reunited and they will be appointed one leader who will come up out of the land. For great will be the day of Jezreel. Save your brothers, my people. Say of your sisters, here it is, my loved one. My loved one. So love is extended just like the relationship began. All the way back with Abram, where God, out of undeserved mercy, just shows up and says, hi. You know, it should be noted, before we keep going, that this is a major passage for us in the New Testament. See, both Peter and Paul in Romans 9 and 1 Peter 2 say, this is predicting what's happening here today. That Jew and non-Jew, under an appointed leader named Yeshua, Jesus, would start a new people of God called the church. It's us. And so dawn breaks, right? 
We all actually start feeling okay as that dark sky seems to dissipate. We all start to go, wow, that was sort of scary. I don't like thinking about God like that. But then suddenly, we're actually thrown back from the coming beauty of the future all the way back to the ugly reality of the now. Like Israel at this moment, Gomer has left her, left her husband, Hosea. She and the nation are out whoring. They're hunting for more lovers, leaving the faithful at home again. Turn to Hosea 2, verse 2. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her, for she is not my wife, I am not her husband. Let her remove her adulterous look from her faith and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. What does she say later? Down in verse 5, I will go after my lovers who give me food and, and water, wool, linen, oil, and drink. Her face is full of lust. She exposes her breasts, her body to be ravaged by unholy passion, by lover and lover, not only just sexually, but to other gods, the god of Baal. She gives herself again and again for one thing, profit, food, wool, linen. This is the heart of it, right? This is what leads to the great divorce. One wrote, the statement openly admits the obvious, I mean, Gomer is not behaving like Hosea's wife, so Hosea can't be the husband. The basis for God's claim here is that adulterous look and the unfaithfulness between her breasts. Some contend these expressions, listen, actually are outward signs of religious prostitution. Makeup of a certain type, tattoos of a certain type, and jewelry were connected at that moment to the Baal cults, and they were used provocatively for sexual encounters as you worshipped a false demon. God is trying to persuade Israel, his people, to remove that pagan, demonic culture from their midst. And yet, as the people worship false gods and actually have sex right in front of idols, you see, let me be raw here. <laughs> if this was a Baal cult and we were worshiping, we'd all be having sex right here with prostitutes. This is how they worshiped a false god. And Gomer was one of them. As they did this, the people that knew orally the word of God, the people who had been elected, God hints at mercy again. His love is going to cover all his sin and their sin. And here's the most beautiful thing. He is not going to bring up their sexual infidelity forever. He says later in that verse, that chapter, verse 14, I'm going to allure her back. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came out of Egypt. Verse 16, in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and will no longer call me my master. Well, the story has to shift now from God and Israel back to Hosea and Gomer, his wife, the heart of God, even though he had every righteous right to get out because of adultery and desertion, now tears up the paper and prepares to remarry his wife. Since God was moved to mercy, now the story of Gomer and Hosea must reflect heaven and earth. Chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord said to me, now go, Go show love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and she's an adulteress, love her as the Lord God loves the Israelites, even though they turn to their other gods and love their sacred raisin cakes. I have no clue about the raisin cakes, by the way. <laughs> Hot crust buns? Uh-oh. No, no. It's actually a, a bread they would consume during wickedness as an offering. God is the one. Catch it? God's the one who starts the restoration process, uh, not Gomer, not Hosea, not Israel. It was divine, not human desire or initiation. God says, go and love her. 
In Hebrew, the word love means go have sex with her. Go fall in love with her. Go express deep emotional care and commitment. Go, here it is, and make a covenant with her again. Hosea's deeds, his actions, his words must win his wife's eye. But don't miss this either. When Hosea is called by the living God to love again, she's still being loved by another. She's not coming back. She's still in bed with some guy. I love how the message translates this. Then God ordered me. Start all over. Love your wife again. Your wife who's in bed with her latest boyfriend. You know, your cheating wife. Love her the way I, God, love the Israelite people, even as they flirt and party with every God that takes their fancy today. And so Hosea, a person just like us, in faith, with a strong understanding of God and his sovereignty, obeys. And as he walks, I'm sure he had doubt. I'm sure he had anger and misgivings. Thoughts were probably going through his head like, when I get her home, I'm going to tell her, I'm going to reform you, you little hussy. But God would whisper, not like that. Let me give you what you need because you don't have it. And so he turns that corner, the corner that had haunted him night after night because he knew what his wife, that he actually loved, was doing over here. He shows up to reclaim his wife. And the story takes an ancient turn. Verse 2, so I bought her back for 15 shekels of silver, about a homer and a half of barley. Why did he have to buy her back? Some say she was in debt. Others actually say she'd become a slave again. I love what one person wrote, and I read it this week. Let me read it to you. Slaves, you know, were always sold naked in the ancient world, he writes. And that would have been true of Gomer as she was put up on the auction block in the capital city. She had apparently been a beautiful woman, even beautiful in her fallen state. So when the bidding started, offers actually got quite high. The men of the city are now bidding for the body of this female slave to ravish her again. Twelve pieces of silver, someone said. Thirteen, said Hosea. A fourteen, fifteen, said a house father. Low bidders begin to drop out. Someone added, no, no, fifteen pieces of silver and I'll give you a bushel of barley. Fifteen pieces of silver and a bushel and a half of barley, said Hosea. The auctioneer would have looked around to see if there was anyone willing to bid higher. He didn't see any. And he said, sold. Now Hosea owned his wife again. He could have killed her, you know, on the spot. Actually, legally, he could have done that. He could have made a public spectacle of her, but he didn't. So now they get home. She hasn't looked at him the whole time. She couldn't. She knew what she had done. They enter the house, and she couldn't dare look at the three kids. Her heart's pounding. Would he beat her? Maybe he's just going to kill her in front of them. Uh, Maybe this would be a worse hell than the auction block. So he sits in front of her, and she sits down, and he puts his hand on her face, and she freezes in terror. She's got no rights in this situation. But instead of that verbal or physical or even sexual assault that she's expecting, he just gently lifts her head and looks in her eyes and says, in gentle love, we need to talk. Many a pastor read the next verses below in harsh, demanding tones, and they miss the heart of a Hosea. This is an honest, loving chat about restoration. Then I told her these words. You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any other man, and I will live with you. 
The restoration, find it, happens in three steps here. Number one, he actually sets her free. Number two, he commits to be with her forever as long as she does the same. And then he says the most important thing in this passage, I'm still willing to be your husband. I'm going to stop right there and think about the last three weeks and this week. So follow along with me for a moment. Did you catch something here today? Do you start seeing the love of God, how absolutely spontaneous it is, how not rational it is? It is mercy. It is the mystery of God just relating grace, compassion, and commitment to faithless, not faithful people. If you join us here today or watch online or listen and you're not a Christian, you belong to another religion, you don't have a religion, or maybe you're the one who has the title Christian, but you're not one of us. You, you have it because of culture or background or you just think that's what it is, but you're not really committed to the lordship of Jesus. God comes to you in striking tones this morning and speaks directly to you. He says, this story is only a foreshadow, listen, he says, of much greater things to come. This story actually foreshadows that, the cross. This is what God would do for all humanity. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. While we were still having affairs with other gods, with other ideas, doing life on our own terms, either through religion or just with middle fingers up, he comes and says, I'm willing to buy you back if you want the freedom. One wrote, this is what redemption means, that word in the Bible, to buy back out of slavery. See, if we understand Hosea's story, he writes, we understand that we are slaves sold on the auction block of sin. We were created for intimate fellowship with God and for freedom, but we have disgraced ourselves and become unfaithful as humans. First, we have flirted and then committed adultery with the sinful world and its values, and then the world bids for our soul, right? Uh, Sex, money, fame, power, all the items it traffics in. But Jesus, our faithful bridegroom, our lover, enters the marketplace to buy us back, and he bids one thing, his own blood. There is no higher bid than that, and we can become his if we want it. When we say yes to him, as many of us have here, we can testify, tell you the truth, that he reclothed us. He didn't beat us. Not with wretched rags of our old unrighteousness, but with new righteous robes. He said, you will dwell as mine, you shall not belong to another, and I also will be with you. This is why we as Christians cry out from every church, Anglican, Baptist, Presbyterian, Alliance, Brethren, and the list goes on. We need a Savior as humanity, and Jesus is the only name in which people can be saved. Why? Because through his death and resurrection, he is the only one that has overcome everything that enslaves us. The question as a seeker is this, what will you do with God's mercy? What will you do with God's kindness and love? Will you embrace it and actually move your life to give him glory, find purpose in this life, be given eternal life for the life to come and now? Or will you continue to prostitute yourself to things that never have value in the end? Jesus comes by a servant of his, by a community, and says, I am introducing you to undeserved love and everything you've done against yourself and others and ultimately me, I am willing to outbid and cover. Why would you not want new freedom? But then there's a whole group of us who are struggling with the theme of this series. Divorce, remarriage, forgiveness. We're asking, well, how does this play into what Dave said two weeks ago and what Jesus taught and Paul taught? 
Let me spend a few minutes there before I end. This shows us one thing, church. This shows us that there is hope to restore the worst of marriages. See, the same God of Hosea and the same God of Israel is still at work in the darkest places of our lives. Restoration, we learn here, is rooted in something else, redemption. It costs God everything to have relationship for us that we take for granted. And so the cost for, here it is, possibly restoring a marriage that has died or is dying will be just as costly. Here's a few thoughts to build on. One, God starts the process. It's going to have to take God to do a lot in you and your spouse so this marriage may come back together again. Two, you need to ask for love that only comes from heaven itself. You don't have it in you to love that person. You don't have it in you to really forgive that person. It is going to have to be something so supernatural where you say, God, I'm willing, but I can't do this, and God is going to actually have to live his life through you. That's what Paul taught. Number three, it's going to cost you big time. Hosea had to go and spend his own money to obey God. Did you think about that? He's going to do this, and he says to you, it's going to cost you too. It's going to cost you pride, right? You and 10 years from now can't bring up, but you were the one. No, no, not anymore. You can work through that and say that, but eventually that goes away. It's going to cost you forgiveness, not to use it against them anymore in time. It's going to cost you resources, time, energy. Here's the big one. It's going to cost you risk. This option, like we've heard from Jesus and Paul, is not an obligation, but a personal decision to see if the spouse and you, with God's help, will become trustworthy again and to see God work a miracle in both of you. You may be the more innocent party, but there is no such thing as pure innocence in divorce. This does not mean it will happen. It does not mean the spouse will become trustworthy. It will take time to discern and see if retrust is even possible. All I want to say today out of this passage is this. With God, miracles can happen. As one pastor, Wayne and I were talking this week, we know so many people in Crothers who've been right here. The affair happened. The desertion happened. All hell broke loose in the family. There was a year, two years, three years, five years of pain. But guess what? They are now here together as a couple. And they will both tell you, these couples, it was only God who showed up. All we did is ask. So God comes to one group of us and says, as non-Christians, it's time. He comes to another group and said, are you even willing to trust me with the conversation? But lastly, let me end with a challenge to anyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus. Teens, 20-somethings, adults, single, married. He says, you know, church, my view of sin has not changed over time. We're called to turn and repent from sin. We know better. I mean, unlike most of the world, uh, we actually know God, and we actually have the privilege of owning his word, not only here, but on iPods and cell phones and everywhere else. One wrote, God is not pleased with Christians today who do not maintain a loyal covenant commitment to him. He still looks at sin, any sin, as prostitution, a serious and disgusting breach of that love relationship. And although society, of course, has loosened the stigma of many sins and relativized morality, the level of individual preference now overdoing God, God still says it's as serious as adultery. So God comes to one other group of us today and says, metaphorically and literally, stop sleeping around on me. There's no hope, no joy, and no purpose in those things. Here's what you need to cry out today. Give me a heart for you again. 
because I don't have one right now. Cry out the old hymn that we actually sang last week. I am so prone to wander from the God I love. And as you cover your face and say, honestly, I am Gomer. I am Israel. I have prostituted my things, not of God. This is what God will do to you because his love and his mercy always is covered by Jesus' blood and overcomes and satisfies his holiness. He says these things, I will forgive you. And then he speaks to you directly and gives you the words of Paul. He says these words to you, death and life, angel, demon, present, future, powers, height or depth, anything else in creation, you will not be separated from my love. The question we need to ask as we end and reflect this week is this, are we willing to hear Are we willing to embrace? Are we willing to be changed by the love of God that is so undeserved but absolutely available? So Jesus, hear our prayer right now. We as a community are here uh, and in other places. Wow. I think we all would say to you this morning, I am Gomer. (laughs) I am Israel. I I have had so many affairs on you, sexually and otherwise. Oh my goodness, your love is so good. So for one group, we pray this morning that as they contemplate God's love for them, that you, God, would introduce yourself and they would come to faith in Jesus and be transformed and call you Savior and Lord and have their life transformed. Another group of us come before you this morning and say, God, my marriage is Well, I don't even know what to say. So, if it's possible, have mercy. And lastly, we all say to you, Lord, forgive us. We have done so many things in secret against you. So forgive us. Change us. Give us the power of the Spirit of God. Help us to confess, to be accountable. But we really pray today, Lord, for those who have run so far from you, even though they know you, like you said in Hosea 2, go allure them back. Show them your love again. Be that husband, that everlasting father. And may they become the greatest testimonies in this church about salvation, redemption, hope, and purpose. God, do your work in our church because if you don't, we'll never do anything. We ask this in the name of Jesus who is faithful forever and ever. Amen.